John chapter 12 this morning. We'll start off reading in verse 34. John 12. We'll start off reading in verse 34 where we left off last week. John 12, 34 says, The people answered Him. We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. How sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light. Let darkness Lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him that the saying of Isaiah, the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah said again, he had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, and be converted, and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah, <laughs> when he saw his glory and spake of him. Leave off reading there in verse 41. After our Lord raised Lazarus from the grave, a number, a great number of Jews as well as Gentiles believed on him to salvation. But as you know from what we've been seeing already, there were also many who did not believe him. So why did they not believe? Well, starting in John chapter 5, John uh, begins to develop this argument. And starting in John chapter 5 and culminating at the cross, we have seen that the unbelieving Jews have been withstanding the Lord's teachings and denying His miracles. But why? Why? Uh, first, I think, we've learned from the Scriptures that they are ignorant of the Word of God. They don't know what the Word of God says. They did not understand it. But they also remained unteachable. They showed no interest in being taught the Word of God. If it contradicted with their ideas of life and living and with uh, their religion, uh, they were bound by their religious tradition and were not open for, to anyone, including the Lord Jesus Christ, correcting them. Even examining them. Maybe he's right. Let us look into this. No. Their commitment to their religion over their commitment to God and his word led them to reject everything the Lord Jesus Christ told them. In their rejection of our Lord, they raised questions among themselves and among the people concerning him. And this is what we see in verse 34. The people answered him, We have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. How sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And let's break down these verses. The people. Who are these people? John's common 
uh, phrase for those people who were Jews who were unbelievers is the people, the Jews. Refers to those Jews who from the heart have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. These people say, we have heard. What had they heard and how did they hear it? Well, they had been taught in their synagogues. They would go to the synagogue every Sabbath day and they were taught. And we've seen this before uh, in our study of the scriptures. If you're taking notes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. Matthew chapter 5, I won't read all of the verses, but Matthew 5, 21 says, You have heard Jesus Christ speaking. You have heard that it was said of them of old. And then in verse 22, But I say unto you, You have heard, but I say unto you. You have heard, but I say unto you. You have heard, but I say unto you. This goes down through John, through Matthew's gospel. Over and over you see this exchange of this phrase. This is what you've been taught, but this is what I say. As Jesus Christ addresses what they've been taught. But the people said, we have heard out of the law. Now typically the word law refers to the first five books of the of the scriptures in the Old Testament. But in this case and in other cases, it refers to the whole of the Old Testament. We have heard out of our scriptures that Christ abideth forever. We've heard and been taught from our rabbis that Christ abides forever. When Messiah comes, he's going to live forever. And they had seen that in their scriptures. Let's go back to the Old Testament. I want to refer to some of these and to show you how they had misinterpreted them. Let's go first to Psalm 89, verse 3 and 4, and then we'll look down a little bit further in that text. Psalm 89, Psalm 89, verse 3, God speaking, says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant, verse 3. I have sworn unto David my servant, verse 4, this is what God swore, thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. This is what God swore in his covenant with David. Your seed and your throne forever. Okay? Drop down to verse 34. God speaking, my covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that is gone out of my lips. Verse 35. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. Verse 36, his seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. The Jews took texts like this out of the Psalms and they interpreted it that said David's seed would sit on a physical throne in a physical kingdom and it will last forever. But is that what this is talking about? Did that actually come to pass? Has David's kingdom lasted forever in Israel? Well, the answer, of course, is no, it has not. So what is God talking about then? Because the word of God is true and there's no contradiction in it. The text, this text and others like it, referring to David's seed, not referring to his physical seed, which had an end, for his kingdom had an end, but actually refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the seed of David. David's physical throne, his kingdom, did not last forever. It has not lasted forever. But our Lord's throne, his rule, his kingdom, will last forever. 
And that's how this is interpreted. But the Jews took it to mean that when Messiah comes, he's going to establish a kingdom on the earth, physical kingdom, sit on the throne, and it will never have an end. The prophets also spoke of this. Go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Daniel 2, 44. Daniel prophesying, speaking of Messiah, says, In the days of these kings, and speaking about that future set of kings, In the days of these kings, shall, God, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And at the end of the verse, it shall stand forever. Daniel 2.44 God is going to establish a kingdom that will never have an end in the day of Messiah. In the days when the Roman kings were going to be ruling, I'm going to establish a kingdom that will not be destroyed. Go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 14. We'll see it again. Daniel 7, 14. Again, Daniel prophesying of that future date when Messiah would come. The Greek word translated for the Hebrew word that's translated Messiah is Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Okay? So Daniel 7, 14 says, And there was given him, this Messiah, there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion, his rule is forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It doesn't have an end. And shall not pass away. And his kingdom... Uh, that which shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7.14 The kingdom that the seed of David establishes is not going to be destroyed. It's not going to have an end. This cannot be a thousand year reign. This cannot be a, a reign that doesn't come to an end because the words everlasting shall not pass away, shall not be destroyed. This cannot be a kingdom that some army can destroy. If you know the history of Israel, you know that when Babylon's conquered them and took them into Babylon, 70 years later when they came back into the land, there was no more kings. The last king of Israel was destroyed by the Babylon. Babylonian nation and there were no more kings 70 years in captivity come back in that period of time from the time they returned to the land until Messiah came Jesus Christ came no kings sitting on any throne in Israel it ended in the Babylonian captivity destroyed by another nation so what is Daniel speaking about Ezekiel 37.25 says, My servant David shall be their prince forever. Ezekiel 37.25 Forever, my servant David. These pro prophecies, these uh, in the Psalms and in the prophets, these statements from Israel's prophets were interpreted by the Jews as a restoration of Israel's glorious and everlasting physical kingdom. But verses like this one do not refer to a physical kingdom, but to the spiritual kingdom established by our Lord Jesus Christ when he came. We have seen this thinking in our Lord's disciples, those that will be the apostles. Do you remember? Even up to the Passover, 
just hours before Jesus Christ would be crucified, the apostles are arguing among themselves of who's going to be greatest in God's kingdom, in Christ's kingdom. They're, they're looking for a physical kingdom. And even after the death, burial, and the resurrection and of, of Christ and, and his days on the earth, and he's about to ascend and take his place on the throne before the day of Pentecost, their question to Christ is, is it time yet for your kingdom to come? They still haven't grasped it. But they will after Pentecost. After the Spirit of God comes and opens their eyes, they'll see it's spiritual, not physical. That was the thinking of the Jews in the days of Jesus Christ. It's common thinking even among professing Christians in our day. That thinking has so permeating, we have been taught out of our life, that, out of our law, that Messiah abideth forever. And then the question, because this is what our word, this is what the law says. This is what we've been taught. Then the question, how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? How can you speak in opposition to our law? How can you speak in opposition to who those who are the very mouthpiece of God? The word prophet means a mouthpiece of God. How can you, Jesus of Nazareth, speak against our law? How sayest thou that the Son of Man must be lifted up? How can you speak in opposition to our religious teachings? We've been taught out of the law that Messiah abides forever. You just said, last week we saw it, you just said, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men unto me. They had properly understood his words in verse 32 to mean being lifted up that meant that he was going to die. And in their minds, Messiah cannot die because he comes to establish an everlasting kingdom. They had also understood that he declared himself to be their Messiah when he spoke of being the Son of Man. What they are saying is this in this verse. If you indeed are Messiah... How can you say you will die? Our religion doesn't allow for that kind of thinking. Our religion does not allow for us to think of you as being Messiah and you dying. So the conflict is again set up between them and the Lord Jesus Christ. But brethren, I want you to see their questions were not asked so they might have a better clarification as to who he was they, or that they might believe on him. They weren't asking the questions so they can see more clearly so they can embrace him with a greater truth. No. They didn't want to serve him. They didn't want to follow him. Instead, the questions were asked to solidify their religious position that this man is not who he says he is. Our Messiah is going to live forever and establish a kingdom on the earth forever. This man cannot be the true one. I've seen it my whole ministry. People ask questions, not because they want clarification so they can embrace a greater truth, but they ask the question to defend their position, their religious position. How can you say that they're not really interested in truth, Brother Pat? Well, look down in the text to verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. And we'll come to that verse in a minute. 
Verse 34, how sayest thou that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus said to them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whether he goeth. While you have light, believe in the light, that you may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. These three verses, or these two verses, or the next two verses I want to look at. Jesus said to them, the people are questioning him. The unbelieving Jews are questioning him, and he responds. Now, the first thing I want you to learn from this, brethren, is, and I want you to notice is this. Despite all the rejection, despite the condemnation, despite the lies that have been told about him, he still calls upon these Jews that are standing before them, these unbelievers, to repent and believe on him. And this next thing I want you to notice is that our Lord Jesus Christ knows the worst about an individual and yet still calls them to repent and believe on him. He knows that these are the very ones that want to kill him. He knows these are the very ones who have rejected his counsel. And he knows the question was not asked for a greater clarification, but to, con to solidify their religious beliefs. And yet he still speaks to them about believing in the light. He knows the Jews do not believe he is their Messiah. They reject him. They reject his word. They want to kill him. Yet he speaks the truth to them. The Lord Jesus Christ knows the truth about sinners and is still ready to receive them. That is an amazing thing to me. As we study the scriptures, these kind of things just sort of stop us in our tracks. And say, wow, look at this. With a spoken word, they could be cast into hell. <laughs> With a spoken word, they could fall down dead. This is God they're talking to. And yet he comes back again and says, I want you to believe in the light. We need to learn from that. It is never a good idea to cover up what religious people believe. Jesus doesn't do it. We ought not to do it. Never. A good idea to cover up what they believe. Especially, especially if it has the potential of sending them to hell. If it is contrary to the gospel. It is much better to do as our Lord did. Face them with their error and call them to repent and believe. This is what you need. You need the light. But there's a fourth thing here and that is this. Our Lord does not argue over their doctrine. They had just said... In the, we've been taught in our law that Messiah lasts forever. Now, he didn't come back and say, well, now, wait a minute, let's look at these texts and let me explain this to you. What did he, he didn't do that, did he? What did he do? He didn't argue over their doctrine. He just simply says to them, believe in the light. You have a duty to believe the light. He knows they don't understand him or his word. And yet he says to them, you have a duty to believe the light while it is here before you. He knows they are trifling with everlasting life. This is not a matter of what your rabbi said. 
This is everlasting life. You see how he comes to the root of the matter? This, what you believe, affects everlasting life. It's not about kingdom. It's about life. He comes away from their thinking back to the root of the issue. What you believe is going to send you to hell. You're trifling with everlasting life by entertaining questions that have already been answered. In the midst of so much light, they are demonstrating so much ignorance. The Apostle Paul warns of this this kind of situation. In 2 Timothy 2, in verse 23, he says, But foolish and unlearned questions avoid. Why? Knowing that they gender strife. To To Titus, he writes... Titus chapter 3, verse 9, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law. Why? For they are unprofitable and vain, useless. Get to the root of the matter. I've tried to teach you. Look at a doctrine. Look at what they say and get to the doctrine of the gospel. Get to the root of the issue. So he speaks to them. Yet a little while is a light with you. Walk while you have light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. Our Lord uh, does not answer their question, but teaches them again that he is the light. He is the one who is able to reveal truth to them. Without light, you can't see the truth. Without me, you can't understand the truth because I am the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one, if followed, will lead sinners into a greater light out of darkness, out of darkness into light. He has already addressed this issue. In John 8, he said uh, to them, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. Our Lord also teaches that the continual rejection of him and his word will lead to darkness. Notice his words. Notice his words. Walk while you have light, lest darkness come upon you. That phrase, come upon you, in the Greek means to overtake you. Where darkness overtakes a person. Here darkness is personified as pursuing a sinner. They are in darkness, but they can be overtaken by a greater darkness. And then another greater darkness. Here, uh, darkness is shown to be more powerful than the sinner is. It overtakes them. Darkness like sin and Satan are powerful enough to overtake the sinner. And this darkness just settles down upon them. But there's also something else here. He says, if you don't embrace the light, you don't know where you're going. Knoweth not whether he goeth. The second thing our Lord says about darkness is that it also has the power to keep people ignorant. So they don't know where they're going. So completely blinded. It keeps a person from knowing the truth about, about true life. Darkness keeps a sinner ignorant to the fact they're traveling on a road to destruction. <laughs> Light reveals the way to God. 
the way to life, everlasting life. Darkness keeps a person blinded to that. And so our Lord comes back to them and says, while you have light, believe in the light. While you have light, believe in the light. That you may be the children of light. Believe in the light is the same thing as saying believe in me when Jesus Christ is speaking it. That, here's the purpose. This is what the design of it is. This is what the design of believing is. That you may be the children of light. But these Jews thought they were the children of God, didn't they? Every religion, religious person thinks they're the children of God. They thought they had God's light upon their religious teachings. They thought they were walking in the light. They did not know they were lost sinners walking in darkness. And so Jesus gets to the root of the issue. Let's not talk about the kingdom. You know, I had somebody knock, occasionally they knock on your door. You know, we're here to talk about the kingdom. I'm sure you've had that same experience. Okay? And my answer is, let's not talk about the kingdom. Let's talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, well, no, let's talk about him because he's the Lord of the kingdom. He's the king of the kingdom. No, we're here to talk about, no, let's talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. You know why they don't want to talk about him? Because they believe he's an angel and not God. And I want to get to the root of the matter. We can argue all day about whether the kingdom is physical or spiritual, but let's get to the root of the matter. Who is Jesus Christ, the one you say you believe in? As he's revealed in the scriptures. That you might be the children of light. God himself is standing before these unbelieving Jews. They are rejecting him. They think they know him, but they don't. And he is saying to them, you are not who you think you are. You need to seek me, he says, so that you might become the children of light. That's what you need. And what we see in that, brethren, is a great mercy. A great mercy. Do you realize? I I think you do. Sin is against God. It is contrary to everything that God is. And here is God standing before sinners. And instead of just the judge of the world doing right to them, doing justice, he pleads with them in mercy to come to the very one who has the power to cast them into hell. What we see is a great mercy here. But I don't want you to get the idea that the Jews were the only ones with this problem because the Gentiles are in the same situation. We who are not Jews are Gentiles. Remember that Paul writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 8 reminds them, For you were sometimes darkness, Ephesians 5, 8. But now are ye light in the Lord. That's where the light is. You are light in the Lord. And then exhorts them, walk as children of light. That's what you were. You're no different than they were. We were in darkness. Now, walk as children of light because now you're in the Lord. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. This is one of those statements in the scripture that just 
sort of slams you in the face. Jesus, after saying to them, they, have to, they must believe in the light, they should walk, they should call upon him, says to leaves them and hides himself from them. It is my understanding that this statement is one of those statements tacked on the end of a verse that actually should be and is, in fact, an introduction to the next part of what he's getting ready to say in verses 37 through 41. But this statement also teaches us that there are times when God hides himself from those who are rejecting him. This is a frightening thing because most people don't hear about a God like this. They, oh, God loves you. God really wants you to be saved. He has a wonderful plan for your life. That's all, you know. But what about God speaking to sinners, telling them, I'm the light, you need to believe in me, and then walking away and hiding himself? That's not the God of the Scriptures. Well, you just read it. It's right there in front of us. In this section of John's Gospel, we see God revealed two ways in, a, in as many verses. Listen. First, He is long-suffering. Despite the hatred of sinners' hearts, despite the fact that He knows they want to kill Him, He continually faces them with the Gospel truth and calls them to Himself. What an amazing thing. We just saw it. But there is a second truth here. He is, in fact, long-suffering, and He does indeed show mercy to sinners. But, eventually, He comes to the end of that mercy toward those who hate Him and turns from them to others and leaves them where they want to be. And that's what introduces to us the next part of this text. But though He had done so many miracles before them, Yet they believed not on him that the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again, He had blinded their eyes and their hardened their hearts and they could, should not see with their eyes or understand with their heart and be converted and I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him in Isaiah chapter 6. Before we get to that last part, we have John inserting a statement here. Though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. God has graciously done miracles in the eyes of his creation from the beginning. Certainly during the days of, days of Israel and certainly during the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to go back to the Old Testament and show you something. Go back there to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I want to read three verses out of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Because God had done many miracles in the presence of un His unbelieving creation and particularly in the presence of His unbelieving nation of Israel. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4, I want you to follow with me as I read 33 through 35. Moses is exhorting... <laughs> reasoning with the nation of Israel. This is a second generation that has come out of Israel, about ready to go into the land. Moses said, Did ever 
people hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of fire as thou hast heard and lived? Or hath God essayed to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation by temptations, by signs and wonders, there's the miracles, and by war and by a mighty hand and by a stretched out arm and by great terrors, according to all the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. Verse 35. Unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know. I showed you these miracles, these miraculous things, that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God, and there is none beside him. Now, Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31 is the record of Moses about to die, and God is speaking, and Moses is speaking, I'm going to die, and this is what's going to happen in the future. Deuteronomy 31, 16. And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. You're about ready to die. I'm going to to bring you home, Moses. Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. And what? This people shall rise up and go whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whether they go to be among them and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day. And I will forsake them. And I will hide my face from them. And they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them. So they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us? Because our God is not among us. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses said, I want you to remember what God has done, such miraculous things. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, they're going to leave me and go after idols. Miracles that reveal God to be God, they're going to leave me to go after idols. But they're not the only ones. You know what happened at the Red Sea, right? When Israel stood at the Red Sea and Egypt was coming against them and God opened the Red Sea and they went across on dry land and Egypt went in and God destroyed them, right? And they sang the song of Moses on the shore of the Red Sea and rejoiced. Forty years later, this second generation is ready to go into the land. Two spies are sent in. And they come to Jericho. And a harlot says, We were told what God did at the Red Sea and we're afraid. And all the nations of this land know what God did at the Red Sea and they're afraid. Forty years, Israel's been wandering around a mountain not believing in the God of miracles, not giving their heart to Him, their life to Him, but they weren't the only ones. All of the Gentile nations in the land of Canaan heard what God had done, and it caused them to fear. And instead of turning to Him, they turned to their idols. 
And 40 years later, God destroyed him. Miracles performed by Satan or by God do not produce a change of heart. It affects the flesh. I mean, if you'd have been standing at the Red Sea that day, you'd say, whoa, look, what? Look at this. If you'd have been standing at the grave of Lazarus, dead four days, stinking, and you saw him rise from the grave, you'd say, what? It's never been done like this before. And your heart, as many did, would maybe have gone after Christ, but many did not, though they had seen so many miracles. Why didn't they believe? Why didn't they call upon him? Why did the nations in Cana, knowing the truth, call upon God? Why did Israel wander 40 years with their idols from Egypt that had to be told by Joshua, put away your idols before we go into the land? Why? Well, many, many years after that event at the Red Sea, many, many years later, God will raise up a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And he makes a statement. And that statement is found here, and it's also found in the book of Romans. And what we see when we come to this is some very, a very difficult part of the Word of God. Difficult not in its interpretation. Listen carefully. Difficult not in its interpretation because God says what He means and His words here are easy to understand. But difficult in its message to sinners. Why? Because sinners find it hard to believe that their salvation is in the hand of God. They believe their salvation is under their full control. I've got a handle on this preacher. I'm okay. Everything's fine. No, it's not. No, it's not. My religion tells me this. I'm okay. No. No. Because the Lord Jesus Christ says thus and thus. This text, these next verses that we're going to look at quickly, eliminates the idea that you've got a handle on this thing called religion. You've got a handle on everlasting life. You don't. It has to come out of the hand of God. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Here is the purpose. They believed not on him that the saying of Isaiah might be fulfilled. This quote is found in Isaiah 53. Paul quotes the same verse and confirms that many of the Jews did not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 10, verse 16, where he says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? Isaiah, Romans 10, 16. But this raises the question, a question among many. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God speaking to sinners. And they're not believing on Him. Does that mean that God failed in His efforts to save the Jews? I once read an article written by a Baptist preacher. If it had been anybody else, I might have not been so shocked by a Baptist preacher that said, Hell is a testimony of God's failure to save sinners. What blasphemy! Coming out of the mouth of a Baptist... 
But this raises the question, has God failed? Did God fail? Because even though he did so many miracles among the Jews, they did not believe on him. He preached to them. They did not believe on him. He reasoned with them. They did not believe on him. Has God failed? The answer is no. God did not fail. What God did was fulfill all he said he would fulfill. Everything God has said will come to pass. Everything. All the promises that bear fruit in Christianity will come to pass. And all the promises that speak of judgment will come to pass. Because what God says comes to pass. Therefore they could not believe. Because that Isaiah said again, He he hath blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, and be converted. And I should heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. What is God saying to us here? First, we need to establish, are these people, who are these people? What is their true nature? When a sinner is born into this world, after Adam fell into sin, when a sinner is born into this sin, in this world, they are born with a hard heart. They are born with blinded eyes. They are born in a state of unbelief. That is the natural state of all who have been born since Adam. This is their condition. It was my condition before God saved me. It was your condition before God saved you. And if you are here lost, it is your condition. The Bible bears this out. This is who we are. Not trying to be offensive or any way like that, but this is who we are. We are born dead in sins and blind to the things of God. And there is none that seeketh them. There is none that doeth good. There is none righteous. No, not one. Our hearts are hardened and desperately wicked above all. The Bible teaches us these things. This is our state. This is our natural state. A state of unbelief, a state of blinded eyes, a state of hardened hearts. The natural state of all who have been born since Adam until this day. So, what does God do when he blinds and hardens? What does God do? What God said through his prophet Isaiah is this. That he would take a step back. Remember, he went and hid himself. He would take a step back. And leave sinners in their natural state. All God has to do to blind a sinner is nothing. All he has to do to harden a sinner's heart is nothing. He just steps back and says, if that's what you want, go for it. Pursue it. If that's what you want. You want to remain ignorant of who I am if you want to harden your heart against me if you want to be blinded and walk in darkness I'll take my hand away from you I will leave you to yourself I won't interfere anymore I won't put roadblocks before you I won't, I won't come to you and, and bring a, a measure of conviction I won't deal with your heart anymore I'll just leave you alone is that really what you want? For God to leave you the way you are. Is that really what you want? 
You don't want God in your, your life. Stop it. Stop bothering me. Stop interfering with me. Leave me alone. Is that what you want? Because if that's what you want, and God determines to step back from you, that's it. That all you have is what you are naturally, and you are left with no hope of everlasting life, and no hope of dwelling with God. God, don't leave me alone. I know I don't understand. I know I've been upset. I know I don't like you at times. I know what I've said. I know what I thought. But don't leave me alone. That ought to be what's in your heart. Don't leave me to myself because I know what I can do with myself. Don't leave me alone. Don't hide from me. Don't let me have what I really want to have. Work in my heart so I want you. So that I have you. Because what I really want is going to send me to hell. And what I really need is you. And so they didn't believe because of the miracles. And they could not believe because of their own natural state. And God took a step back and left them there. Let it not be said of us that God has left us. You say, but I'm lost. What do I do? How do I? I was lost for 25 years. I walked in darkness for 25 years. I did not know what God had to say. For 25 years, I picked up the Bible one day and began to read it. And I realized if I was going to be different, God had to make me. If I was going to be forgiven, God had to do it. And that was enough for God to save me. And it's enough for God to save you this morning. You realize that if God's going to change my... If, if I'm going to have a change of heart, if I'm going to be forgiven, if I'm going to have everlasting life, God's going to do something for me that I can't do for myself. And so in the depths of your heart, Lord, don't leave me alone, please. Don't hide yourself from me. Let's pray together.